back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews features Gary G., a fellow member of a Zoom group out of L.A. that we've attended together over the past couple of years. Gary has always struck me as one of the most laid-back people I know in AA, and he exudes the kind of calm confidence evident in his 39 years of active participation in AA. Gary grew up in a family in which his father was a well-known band leader, and his mother was literally the singer in the band. But the chaotic lifestyle and his mother's alcoholism were a constant source of conflict between his parents. High school at a military academy provided some respite, but alcohol still found its way into Gary's life. By the time he was in college, Gary's attraction to drinking was matched only by the business acumen he had acquired from his father. Success in his end of the music industry accelerated, but so did his alcohol use. Brief stints of sobriety were cobbled together by sheer willpower, but he still couldn't stop. By the time his ability to function under the influence began to wane, the realization that he was an alcoholic who needed help struck him hard. Fortunately, Gary's interlude of clarity occurred when he ran into a friend he'd not seen in a long time who told Gary of his sobriety through AA. The seed planted, Gary procrastinated calling his friend for a while, but eventually connected with him and went to his first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Gary's tale is one of complete commitment to AA and the constant recognition of its primary importance in his life. Events and circumstances which challenge even the most committed AAs have been taken in stride, and Gary credits continuous practice of the program basics for his ability to weather difficult times. The gifts of sobriety appear with regularity in Gary's life, and his ability to share that with others makes him a valued friend to many and an esteemed member of his AA community. I think you'll dig Gary's easygoing manner and his revealing story of contented sobriety. So, please enjoy the next 60 minutes of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Gary G. I'm Gary, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Gary. Welcome to AA Recovery Interviews. I really appreciate you doing this uh, today and your willingness to share your story with people out there, those in recovery and those outside of recovery for whom your words may be inspirational and motivating. Uh, You and I met each other, interestingly enough, even though we don't live in the same area. uh, We met each other at a meeting that we've been attending on Zoom in the L.A. area. And I wondered, how did you come to that meeting to begin with? Well, our mutual friend, Paul, Uh I'd been to L.A. to visit him a couple of times. Mm Mm-hmm. And we went to the meeting, and I got to see a lot of the people that are that are on the Zoom meeting, including Prue, our, our sweet Prue. We would go to breakfast afterwards. So I, I actually great. attended two of the meetings in person. So you are not in California. You are in Oklahoma. Yes. And what, what part of Oklahoma are you in? I'm in Guthrie, Oklahoma, which is about 30 miles north of Oklahoma City. Okay, so it's essentially a suburb of Oklahoma City. Yes, I, I was born and grew up in Oklahoma City. You've been sober a pretty long time. What, what's your actual sobriety date? February 4th, 1983. 
So you're at 39 years, mm -hmm. is that right? Yes. So what was going on on February 3rd that made February 4th the day that you decided to check out AA? Well, you might call it the end of procrastination because I had been trying to meet with this particular friend for quite some time. And I finally was able to connect with him. So on the 3rd, I was anticipating getting with my friend to see about what I could do. Hmm. You mentioned the word procrastination. Usually we think of that word as something that we're meaning to do at some point, but we've been putting off. So how does procrastination apply to what was going on for you, leading you up to getting sober? Well, I'm not sure if I, if I caught it from my dad or it's a gene or what, but I've always put things off until the last minute. You know, go with that, that theme. If it weren't for the last minute, I'd never get anything done. So I knew that I needed to quit drinking. Mm. And I kept thinking, well, tomorrow, or I'll, I'll do that next week. I've got a busy week or New Year's Eve is coming up, or whatever. And so I have a notebook that, that I write my daily calls and, and things to-do list. Mm -hmm. And I still have the notebook leading up to that date. Hmm. And I can go get my, my daily messages to myself, do this, do that, call so-and-so. Wow. This guy's name was John, and, and his name was in my book probably 10 times at least, called John. Call John. So I kept putting it off, and, and also John was kind of hard to reach. And so between me putting it off and him being uh, a really busy guy himself, uh, it took a while. Well, you said you knew you needed to quit. Where did that knowledge come from? What was going on that informed that kind of thinking? I don't know. I think most of us have an idea in the back of our minds that something's not quite right with our drinking. And I, I knew it really several years before. I knew it in the back of my mind. I, I wasn't willing enough to admit it to anybody, mm -hmm. and not even myself completely. But I had it in my family, so I, I knew that that was what was going on with me. And so it was just obvious to me. Hmm. You mentioned the family, and of course, for a lot of us, the alcoholism or drug addiction or mental health issue is firmly planted within the family garden or tree or whatever you want to call it. What was your family of origin like with regard to that particular legacy? Very interesting childhood. I grew up in kind of a kind of an I Love Lucy home in a way because my father was Italian, not Cuban, but Italian. Uh -huh. And my mother was a singer, an artist. And, uh, hmm. and so they met in the business. And so my father was a big band leader like Glenn Miller style. My mother was the singer in the band, and I grew up with that. So um, my house was full of music all the time. You know, it was we were like a, a 1940s TV family almost. Were, were you a early performer yourself, or how were you indoctrinated into the family's passion? I chimed in to it pretty early. It seemed that my, uh, my affinity was towards the drums, and so mm -hmm. I remember way back flipping over the metal trash can in the in the house and and mm -hmm. using that to play drums on. But I also liked words. I've always been a word man. And, mm -hmm. and so I would write words, and I would even do parodies to some of the 40s songs 
that my mom would sing. Uh huh. There was a song called "I Can't Give You Anything But Love," and oh yeah, I wrote a whole new lyrics to that song as as probably a six seven year old. I guess. Do you remember the words to the beginning of the song? I can't give you anything but help was the first line. That's the one thing you can't get by yourself, baby. And on from there. God, that sounds almost prophetic there, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) It could have been. It could have been. What were your first experiences like with alcohol and drugs? I remember my first beer. And uh, Mm -hmm. my mother, she was a vocalist. She was an artist. She had to decide when she got out of high school whether to go to art school. She got a scholarship to a prestigious art school in Chicago. She mm-hmm. turned that down to be a singer. She sang with the group Art Van Dam in, in Chicago and uh, then moved to Oklahoma. But she was an artist, a poet, and all those things. But she also drank. Huh. My father was, was all music and business. He was the Italian entrepreneur, ringleader of the family, and... And uh, he he was a teetotaler. Mm-hmm. And so my mom had beer in the house. Mm-hmm. She smoked. My dad didn't do either. And I remember one day I, I got a beer and I drank probably half of it. I don't know how much. I, and I don't know how old I was. But when I finished drinking it, I had this crazy urge to go outside into the neighborhood and just talk to people. It was like okay, I am ready to communicate. Socially lubricated as a kid, huh? Yeah, that, that was the first memory I had of what it, what it actually did. It made me want to go out and talk to people. So did you seek it out from there, or was that just kind of a uh, one-off experience? That was one-off at the time, I, but I obviously never forgot that. So what kind of effect did your mother's drinking have on the family? Quite a bit, quite a bit, mm. because it, as any home with alcoholism in it, it, it dominates the household. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. I was the middle child, older brother, younger sister. And I kind of considered myself the referee. I, I thought that if, if I just stayed awake when I heard them arguing that I could protect her or him from anything bad happening. When my mom would drink, of course, my dad being a teetotaler. He didn't understand anything about it. He, he didn't like it. He was the band leader and the businessman, the agent and everything. And she, she should, in his mind, act like he did. And so they would get into these fights and they were usually after they got home from a job. You know, they'd be out, out playing uh, at the country club or somewhere and mm-hmm. they'd come home and it'd be 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. And so a lot of times it was 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning when it would be going on. And I would look across the room at my brother, and he was sound asleep. But I was awake, and I was the one that, uh, if I thought it got, it was getting too crazy, I would jump up out of bed. What did that little kid's thinking attribute that to? What were you thinking that was going on? I had a pretty decent idea that the alcohol was the problem, and mm. that my mom was drinking too much. Mm. I don't know mm-hmm. what age I it really came into me that 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 was what was happening but Mm -hmm. i i knew that alcohol was the problem and that my dad didn't like it knowing what you know now would you looking back at your mother have considered her a full-blown alcoholic yes yes 
That must have been tough for your dad. I think it was very tough knowing what I know now with him not having any training or idea about about alcoholism, um, nothing about the program. Uh, he was he was certainly in territory he was unfamiliar with. Of course, I guess in that line of work, alcohol and I guess drugs to some extent were pretty prevalent, weren't they? Oh yeah, yeah. He would have musicians in the band that that uh, had problems with alcohol, drugs, etc. Mm-hmm. You have eleven pieces in the orchestra, and there's going to be a certain number of them that are misusing substance. You mentioned about at some point, if things got a little bit out of hand, you'd jump up and, I guess, try to intercede. Do you remember when you first did that, how old you were, and what you said to them when you burst into the middle of their argument? I don't remember what I said, but I think I was probably somewhere around six, Mm -hmm. seven, somewhere in that area. I could have been even younger. Hmm. That's been a pretty scary situation, huh? It was scary. Little kids, I know it was that way uh, in, in, in my family of origin. My, my parents were at each other's throats all the time, especially my dad. And when I was little, I, I just I didn't understand what was going on. And I just thought, well, I think as children do, we, we kind of take it on ourselves because we're the only thing that we feel like we can control. So it must be our fault of what's going on. Did you ever get that sense when you were a kid? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, a lot of confusion. What is my role in this? I, I had asthma. I developed asthma at about four years old. So I would be up a lot of times by myself in the middle of the night with what they used to use as inhalers that now we have a little pocket thing. But as a kid, it looked like a scientific experiment with a bulb and a glass and and I did all that myself in the middle of the night to, you know, to get relief from asthma. But when you combine what was going on in the house and that, you know, it was it was a difficult time. When do you recall first drinking on your own accord or with the desire to either fit in or check out or when that would have been, how old you would have been when you first sought it out? Well, I know I had some friends that lived about three blocks away and two of us went over to his house and the, the dad had a bar and of course my dad didn't have a bar everything in our house was hidden somewhere <laughs> uh, and his parents were out somewhere and we took turns taking slug out of I guess it was bourbon I don't know what it was it's dark mm-hmm. we took turns taking a slug out of the bottle and we'd run around the house, and uh, we did that for probably 30 minutes to an hour. And uh, I remember that was my first real buzz. And uh, we set out to do that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but that was my first memory of really having very much to drink. Did you get sick, uh, or were did you black out or anything? What was the result of that early drinking? I didn't black out, but I, I do think I got sick. And I'm kind of mixing that, that memory up with a, a cigarette memory that I actually did get really sick. 
uh, when I smoked Camels or Lucky Strike. Uh, that was awful. I had the same experience with cigarettes. What was funny is one of the first times I ever really drank to excess, I got violently, violently sick. And, and uh, I think I might have even had alcohol poisoning, but I was so sick. But somewhere along the way, once I was over it, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't wait to get back to it. What kind of feelings did you have after that experience? Oh, it definitely left an uh, uh, impression on me that uh, this is fun. I mean, we had, we had a lot of fun. We were running around that house and it was the kids version, you know, of a New Year's Eve party or something. It, it was, it was a blast. And so I was ready to have another blast. You know, it was, it was fun and I was introduced. And how old were you when that was going on? I'm guessing I was 14. I was somewhere in the early teens. 14 seems to be the age, 13, 14, 15 seems to be the age at which virtually everybody I've interviewed first got involved. Uh, so you would have been, let's say, a freshman in high school around that time? I th yeah, I think it was a little before I went to high school. I was probably junior high at the time. When you were doing that and you, I, I assume you enjoyed the way it felt, did you perceive any escape from whatever might have been bugging you about your home situation in that drinking? I don't think so. I was, I was seeking a feeling. I wasn't seeking to cover anything up. Were there any consequences to that early drinking with your, either one of your parents or your family in general? I think what happened when I got home, I did get sick. And my mother went in the bathroom and, and knew what was going on. My dad didn't. That That is, I think, my first interaction with a parent, my mother, knowing that, that I drank something. What did she say to you about it? It seems that she insinuated it was, it was going to be our secret, but don't do it again. That's the memory that I have. Uh, I don't yeah. think she said those words, but I think that's what I, what I took. Did your dad ever find out? He never knew that. So that was a pretty well-kept secret then between your mom and you. Uh -huh. So she didn't necessarily try and talk you out of it at that particular point. No, there was no lecture about how the evils of alcohol at all. How about people that you were hanging with, let's say in, uh, in high school, with, with regard to the drinking? And was there any drug use at that time? Hardly any. I actually went to high school at a military academy, and uh, my brother three years older than me, and I went back a year in grade school, uh, mostly because of the asthma. Back back when I was uh, in second, third grade, mm -hmm. I would miss a lot of school because I'd, I'd just be unable to, to go until noon. So I went back a year. So I was four years different from my brother. He was messing around in high school, and he, he barely graduated because he was mm. messing with the girls, and he was in band and sports, and he didn't really concentrate on the rest of the studies. I think my folks saw that happening to me. I was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I was in band and I was in sports and I was not really doing well in school. So I'm not sure if it was simply that or maybe my mom thought it would be a good idea for me to be out of the house. But I went to high school an hour and a half from Oklahoma City at Oakland Military Academy and I went all four years there, and my friends there 
that I gravitated towards were like me. If we had a chance to get away and get some beer, we did it. In most cases, they were also in the band with me or on the wrestling team with me. Yeah, That was my path, was, was to seek out people who thought like I did. So uh, a number of people I've interviewed uh, went to boarding school as a way for their parents to either straighten them out or because of their parents' lifestyle and whatever else, that it was just more convenient to have them away from the home. Do you perceive that there was any effect by being away from your folks at a military school versus had you stayed and went to the public high school? I feel like when I recount what went on and what the results were, that it was one of the best decisions that my parents made and that I went along with because it was never, you have to go. Hmm. There was some kids up there that, you know, they got in trouble and they either had to go to military school or reform school. I wasn't that kid. I mean, there were a lot of kids there that like parents were in Saudi Arabia working for oil companies and they would send their kids back to the States to go to a school. And Mm -hmm. so we had a lot of kids like that. Probably most of the kids were good kids and not really had been in trouble. They just, for one reason or another, ended up there. What was next after military academy? I graduated from OMA in 68. I went to college in Edmond, Oklahoma, Uh at Central State, which is now University of Central Oklahoma. I majored in business and had a minor in music and... uh, Almost immediately after I started college, my father, not only was the, uh, he the big band leader, but he was also the biggest booking agent in Oklahoma. He, he booked mm-hmm. uh, dozens of bands and events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he came to me one day and said, why don't you book these rock bands? They're driving me crazy. And so <laughs> I printed out business cards that said rock bands and had my name and phone number on them. And I started passing those out. So I started booking bands in college for frat parties and bars. And uh, that was my first interlude into the actual business. So you came into what would later become your full-time profession as a result of what you were actually doing in college. Yes. Did the military academy experience, did that lead into any additional military commitments that you needed to make at that point? When I graduated, a lot of my friends who were really strong into the military part of things uh, got their commissions and and went into the Army as officers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And several others just went in because they were drafted. And several friends uh, did not come back. Now, myself, when I went to OMA, I I was really intrigued by the, the military part of it. I always thought guns were cool, and I saw the tanks, mm-hmm. and and that was one of my reasons for saying, yeah, I think I'll go there. But <laughs> I found when I got there that the military part of it was not my thing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be at the gun range. I would be in the wrestling room, or I'd be in the, mm-hmm. I'd be in the band room. So kind of mm-hmm. similar to what was going on in junior high, I was really dominated by sports, wrestling and baseball and by band. Mm-hmm. And I played trumpet in the band. And, you know, mm-hmm. here's a kid that at, at probably 14 or 15 gets to go to New Orleans and march in the Mardi Gras parade uh, because we're in a military band. Mm-hmm. And uh, that experience was phenomenal. 
my high school days were really dominated mostly by by sports and music and i i played mm-hmm. the game for military and and i did fine but i, I didn't excel mm-hmm. and after i got out that they had the draft numbers draft the lottery and i got my number and as i remember it was not horrible but it wasn't real good and but it turned out that because of my asthma and the history of my lungs um, mm-hmm. I ended up not having to go. I think it was called One Y. So mm-hmm. I continued to go to, to college. Shortly after starting my booking career, I actually got in a band and started playing. And when we got a job working six nights a week, then it was off to the races. So you go into a band and your dad has kind of acclimated you into the business and you're starting to engage in the band lifestyle. Is, was it a rock band that you were in? No, it wasn't a rock band. It was it was more of a pop variety band. You know, at the time we mixed Peter, Paul and Mary with Carpenters and Three Dog Night. And, and so uh-huh. we played just a variety of popular music. So you were pretty much a cover band. We were a cover band, yep. So in what ways did your involvement with that band amp up your drinking or affect your drinking? Well, big time, because our first full-time job was at a Ramada Inn and the club. And, of course, the band pretty much drinks free. And out of four band members, I was really the only one that, that really took much advantage of that. Hmm. But yeah, I was 21 when I started in the band, and I might add I lost my mother the same year. So we're working six nights a week. I kept my books hmm. in the backseat of my car because I never knew where I was going to end up. And uh, after four years of college, my final semester or so in college, I was not even going to class. And hmm. so my, my grades were starting to tank. And uh, mm-hmm. so I left... I stopped college before graduating Mm -hmm. and went full-time into booking bands and playing six nights a week and living the fast life. So your mother passed away. Was there any kind of relationship between her drinking and her passing? I believe so. In what way? Well, she fell in the house, but nobody was up, and I wasn't living there at the time. So nobody really saw what happened. But she mm-hmm. hit her head and ended up going to bed. And obviously, if you have a head injury, you're not supposed to go to sleep. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a blood clot on her brain. The next morning, uh, they took her to the hospital and operated, and it was too late. So I don't know what happened, yeah. but I do know that over the years, um, she would dry out. She would go to a place to dry out uh, in Oklahoma City that, that was for that reason. And mm-hmm. she did go to AA. Hmm. She she went to meetings and, you know, she did that stuff. And I didn't really know that much about it because when that was happening, I was at military school. And then after that, of course, I was in college. So I wasn't yeah. around very much. So I didn't really witness her doing the recovery. Uh, I've since found her briefcase that has tons of notes and old grapevines, notes that she made, letters that she wrote to grapevine and all kinds of stuff. And uh, even not too long ago, I met a lady in a meeting who said, I need to see you after the meeting. And I got with her after the meeting and she said, Gary, I have your mom's big book. Oh, my God. 
and I went to her house and she gave me her big book and my mom's name is, is in it. So I have that book. That must have been pretty emotional to get your hands on that. Huh? Yeah, very much. Very much so. Mm. Do you recall at that time being influenced at all by what you perceived her involvement was in Alcoholics Anonymous? I don't know that I was influenced because, as I said, I, I never really got plugged into it. I just knew it existed. Did you see it as a help or something that didn't work because she ultimately may have died from active alcoholism? I think at the time I was I was looking at it as something that had not worked for her. Mm. Although it wasn't a pronounced feeling, it was just uh, she wasn't able to do that. So all those years later, when you finally came into the program, not all those years, but the years later when you finally came in, how did that experience around your mother inform your early days after you came into AA? I think because I went in with an open mind mm -hmm. and because I knew that everything that I tried wasn't working, that uh -huh. I looked at AA as you know the, the last hope. Yeah, and and so if there were any thoughts of negativity because my mom, they didn't affect me. I watched my mom, and I I knew her heart. I knew, I mean, she was mm -hmm. she was a free spirit in the '60s. Uh, she was kind of a hippie, uh, sophisticated mm -hmm. hippie, and and uh, you could mm -hmm. just you could just tell how sweet she was. She, uh, she was just not able to do it. So I never had a negative feeling about her or AA. So taking us back, did you ever get the degree after that? Never did. I, I had probably one semester had my grades not fallen uh, to graduate. Oh. And uh, honestly, I got so busy booking bands and playing my in my own band that uh, I didn't have time. The business was growing. Things were, were good. Were you managing your own band at that time? Yes, uh, I joined a band uh, in college that was already together. It was actually a folk trio, and they mm -hmm. did a bunch of the, you know, three-part harmony uh, oh, yeah. stuff. And when I joined, I joined as a drummer. Mm -hmm. So basically, I kind of turned the band in a direction of pop. Our female vocalist had a voice very similar to Karen Carpenter, so we did a lot of a lot of Carpenter songs, and it was a it was a really a fun time. I really enjoyed it, and I got to be creative. For how many years did you do that? Did you do the band? I was in that band for almost fifteen years. Did that involve a lot of traveling all over? It did not, because what I did is I cultivated Oklahoma as my base and bookings uh -huh. as well as as our band. So we mm. played the, the finer supper clubs early on when we were playing six nights a week and in the fine hotel clubs. But not too long after that, we worked our way into the private party market. So we became one of the premier party bands, gala bands. We played for hundreds of weddings, uh, governor's ball. So we worked a lot at the country club. So that was kind mm. of what we, what we morphed into just a high-class social band. Did the band have ambitions for touring or recording, uh, or, or was everybody satisfied with what you were doing? 
at the time. Well, it's interesting. I watched my father, you know, as a little toddler, I paid attention because he had his office in the house as I was growing up. And I would hear him talking to customers on the phone. And on Mondays, I would hear uh, the musicians that come by to get their checks. And I'd listen to their to their stories. And, and so I really paid attention. And so watching my dad, he was a commercial band. He played for, for big events, big parties. But all the songs they played were songs people knew. They were, you know, the, from the Glenn Miller era, In the Mood, all those big band songs. And, and then they did newer versions of the pop songs, you know. So, so I had that mindset. It was like, that's how we make money. We, we do these commercial jobs. Even though I had a creative mind from, I think I got from my mom, mm-hmm. that never came to play. And nobody in our band were songwriters except, I think, the female vocalist. Um, we did jingles, mm-hmm. and she wrote, and I wrote jingles, so we did some of those. Oh, yeah. But no, we never had the aspiration to, to travel, to go on tour. We were happy just staying right in our market in Oklahoma and playing the, the best jobs. Wow, that is so cool. Uh, most people would not think of Oklahoma as a place where bands would be managed or booked from. You usually think about the bigger cities, don't you? Well, and that, that is true. The agencies that handle those groups are in those cities. But see, I, I was a talent buyer in Oklahoma. The band leader part of me and the agent part of me were two separate deals, although early on they, they really did merge. And I finally, when I left the band and... My last job on stage was New Year's Eve, 1984. And after that, uh, I just went full-fledged into the business. And so I would bring in artists from from L.A. and from New York City and from all over. Mm-hmm. And I would work with those agents in those towns as a, as a talent buyer mm-hmm. and agent. And so uh, Oklahoma was a great place to be because me and my father were the biggest game in town as far as, as music goes. Then we were separate businesses. He had his own business, his his own name of his business, and I, I had mine. I knew early on that we probably wouldn't work well because he had his way and I had mine, and he didn't drink and I did. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Well, you mentioned the the 15 years that you were together, and you finally left the band in 84, but your sobriety date is in 83. Can you walk us down the road of your disease and the progression of your alcoholism through the, throughout those years and what that looked like in your life? Interestingly enough, um, the folk trio that I joined, the female vocalist, stayed with the band all those years. And it'd be interesting to talk to her. She got to watch my progression. I don't know how much she noticed. I've never really asked her that. but uh, So 
from the time that I started in that band till that New Year's Eve of 84, she was there. My progression went on and on. You know, through my 20s, business was booming, the band was popular, but I was getting worse and worse. But I was quiet. I, I didn't start drinking until, you know, the second or third break. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have a drink. And then when the job was over is when I really got going. And so most yeah. of my band members didn't really see a whole lot. But the progression was, was obviously growing. And when I finally was able to stop, I remember the first job that I played without drinking. And it was it was an experience. Now, I did quit before coming to AA. What happened, I, I met my wife-to-be, mm-hmm. and some things happened while we were together and engaged that, uh, like writing on the wall, I looked at this pair of muddy boots that was by the door that there's a whole story behind. And I got up the next morning and I saw those boots and I went out in the driveway and saw the bumper hanging off the car and I thought, you know what? Something's got to change here if I'm gonna if I'm gonna get married and and so I decided just to quit. How many years was this before you you quit using Alcoholics Anonymous? This would have been in '82. I actually quit before I got married. We were engaged to get married in May, mm-hmm. and six months before that is when I quit. Did you do that for her or for for just the way you were seeing your life working out at that time? Both. Both, because I, I knew that if, if we were going to be able to have a marriage, that I wouldn't be able to carry on like that. Did she object to your drinking, or did she ever ask you to stop? She joined in with me, but she was <clears throat> 11 years younger. I, uh-huh. I was 31, and she was 20. And uh, But yeah, she partied with me uh, until she didn't. So yeah, she she recognized you know that some of the things I, were do- I was doing was, was detrimental to my health and our family, our relationship and everything. And so I did, I quit. And, you know, being a wrestler in high school, I have some willpower. Mm-hmm. I could pull that weight and, you know, do have some willpower. But as any alcoholic will tell you, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans when it comes to can you quit drinking or not. Willpower, you know, doesn't enter into it in the long run. But in the short run, here I was. I We, we were engaged to get married, and I had stopped drinking. I told, mm-hmm. I told my brother. Uh, we went together to Texas to an event that booking agents go to, and, and uh, I still have the coffee mug from that day, my brother. And, and I remember being at Billy Bob's in Texas uh-huh. and uh, not drinking. And I thought I needed one of those badges with a star on it, you know, for that. And I came home, and and I remember on the breaks, I would go up to the bar, and I'd ask for a cup of coffee. Mm. And I would get that cup of coffee, and I would walk around the club talking to guests, and I held that mug up like it was a trophy. It's like, you know, and I wasn't saying, hey, I'm not drinking. I was just, I was the coffee guy now. Yeah, right. And I did that. And I I quit for six months. Sheer willpower. Okay. And 
on May 22nd, 1982, we got married. Being the workaholic son of my father, I played that night in my band. <laughs> uh, my wife did come and we did dance, but uh, I worked. Mm -hmm. We took our honeymoon a couple of days later and we went to Hawaii. And I had booked mm -hmm. it through a travel agent. And of course, you know, I'm the guy with the coffee cup, coffee mug. I told the travel agent, no alcohol, no alcohol on this mm -hmm. trip. And so that was specific instructions from me. We get to Hawaii. We check into the Sheraton Waikiki. We go up to, I don't know, 15th floor or whatever. And mm -hmm. the first thing I do is I go out and look out. What can I see out the window? And I look down and see the ocean below. And I look down further and I see the swimming pool and it's breathtaking. And mm -hmm. then I turn around and I see this big basket of uh, pineapple and fruit. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. But right next to it was another basket with ice and a bottle of champagne. And I told my wife, I said, well, we can't drink that. Honestly, I don't remember which one of us said we should just have a toast. But that toast turned into 11-day drinking party. 11-day honeymoon, and we drank every day. I drank, and I could not stop my willpower. I had decided I was going to get back on that plane. And as soon as I got back on the plane, I'm back on. Didn't work. So that procrastination that you were talking about in the beginning kind of factored into this you you had the idea of stopping once you got back on the plane to go home but it didn't work did it it did not work and uh huh. you know I, I did get home we had our wedding reception after we got home uh -huh. and the alcoholic that i am i went and bought i don't know 15 bottles of champagne and we had a champagne fountain at our reception in my dad's backyard i wasn't drinking mm -hmm. i didn't have any of that champagne but, you know, being the big thinker as I am, uh, we had about 13 bottles left. So <laughs> I gave all of those bottles of champagne to my neighbor across the street. And I don't know, a couple weeks later, I was asking him about that champagne. Hmm. Can I get a bottle of that champagne from you? <laughs> anyway. Did he have any left? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he didn't have a drinking problem. He just had a full refrigerator full of champagne. But... Yeah, once I started yeah. again, mm -hmm. once I started again, um, nothing I could do worked. I was walking through a shopping mall in Oklahoma City not long after mm -hmm. that. I spotted a guy walking towards me in, in the middle of the mall, and I recognized him. He was a kind of an old hippie song, songwriter who had gone into mm -hmm. to advertising business. So we came up on each other, and, and I said, Hey, John, how you doing? And he said, Hey, Gary, how are you? I said, I'm doing good. And he said, uh, Well, I'm doing great. I quit drinking, quit smoking dope, go to AA, and life is good. And then he walked away. That's it? He, yeah. And I'm standing there in the, in the middle of this mall watching him walk away, bouncing in his steps, you know, and I'm going, Why on earth would he have told me that? So... You know that notebook I'm talking about? Yeah. Call John. Mm. That's him. John was planting a seed. He 
I guess he knew what he was doing. He was following whatever orders he was getting from wherever it was coming from. But uh, but uh, I could not think of anything else when I come to the end of my rope. I couldn't do anything. John, his life is good. He quit drinking alcohol, quit smoking dope. His life is good. He's going to AA. All I could think. That's all I could think about. So that was the message. That was the divinely inspired message that somehow you guys were together at the same place at the same time for you to hear. Yes. That is a great story. Did you view that as a moment of truth or a revelation at the time, or was it only in retrospect that you saw that? At the time, I truly thought, why would he tell me that? Uh, I was thinking with my ego. You know, I'm a businessman. He's a businessman. Why would he blurt something like that out to, to me we're not that close I mean we weren't I mean we were we were friends but we weren't that close and so I, I was thinking with my ego uh, I wouldn't have done that I wouldn't have just blurted something like that out so after all those years of being a functional alcoholic because it sounds like you were able to keep the band together you were able to keep the business together during the years that you were still drinking so John jammed a wrench into that machinery that day for you, but you weren't that far off quitting for good anyway, were you? No, and I don't, I don't remember the date, but it was probably less than six months before I quit when that happened. And, and I do remember the progression because I went to one of the jobs that my band played uh-huh. and never before in my 14-plus years on stage did I ever take alcohol to a job? It was always there. If it was there, I'd get it. If it wasn't, I'd get it later. This particular night, I went into the restroom, into the stall, and reached in the inside pocket of my tuxedo for a half pint. Hmm. Never done that before. And I remember thinking at that time, you know, this this is not good. This hmm. is not good. Did you continue to do that from that day forward through the six months, or was that a, uh, a moment of truth for you that you were able to do something about at that time? I quit bringing uh, alcohol in my jacket, but no, I was, I was circling the drain. I was out of control. But I had enough of my dad, I guess, in my head that said, you know, you got to keep this business together, your reputation. And so, you know, most people that knew me didn't know I had a problem, I, I think. That makes it tougher to get sober, doesn't it, when people around you don't know? It really does. I mean, you should have seen John's face when I went to his studio, asked him if I could come talk to him. I got to his studio, and he had this big console and a new keyboard, and first thing I, I got there, he started talking about and showing me his new stuff and his equipment, had his guitar out, and we're talking music. And uh, we did that for 30 minutes, and then he looked at his watch, and he said, oh, I got to go. I said, oh, okay, well, I just need to ask you, John, are you still going to that AA thing? He goes, that's where I'm going. i got to go pick up a bass player, a bass player friend of mine. He told me his name. I go, really? And uh, he said, yeah. I said, well, can I go? He goes, you need to go? I said, uh, yeah. So we got in his truck. It was snowing February 4th, mm-hmm. and it was almost up to my knees out, outside. We went by and picked up our friend and uh, mm-hmm. went to our first AA meeting, February 4th, 1983. So that you consider that your sobriety day? Hadn't had a drink since. 
That's incredible. What a fortuitous series of events to happen, some of which seem absolutely like moments of truth. And you get to AA. What were your first weeks and months like in the program? Well, we, we got to that meeting. It was a 5.30 non-smoking meeting. Mm-hmm. And um, John, after the meeting, took me to get a hamburger. And we, we sat and, and had a burger. And he had a big book. And he had a 24-hour book, and he opened both of them and wrote my name and my sobriety date and, and gave them to me. And I still wow. still have. I read that 24-hour book this morning, 39-plus years later. At the end of that meeting, John, and after we finished our, our dinner, he said, okay, that was Friday. He said, Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, 9.15, be back in the clubhouse, in the main clubhouse. And so I said, okay. And I went the next morning to the Saturday morning, 915, which I've been doing ever since and now on Zoom. And um, at that meeting, I was told, okay, the meeting tomorrow is 1115. I I Uh went there. Uh, There was a guy at that first meeting. His name was JC. I just kind of took to the guy. I'd never asked John to be my sponsor. He's my good friend, and, and he's still my good friend. We talk a lot. But, you know, it wasn't meant to be for him to be my sponsor. So I asked J.C., and from that point on, J.C. uh, just kind of guided me the way I needed to be guided, fairly gently. You know, I I wasn't one that would have done well with, you got to do this and you got to do that and Mm -hmm. barking orders. J.C. just just, uh, was was very intuitive. He actually was a former prize fighter Hmm. who actually admitted later on delivering some alcohol or drugs to my father's band members so <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence huh <laughs> yeah so uh, you know i did the 90 meetings in 90 days and and i mm-hmm. immersed myself in the program and, and i just followed instructions is what i did so we're talking about 39 years ago that this happens what major events have occurred within your sobriety gary that you remember really tested or tried your sobriety, your program, your resolve to stay sober? Wow. Um, Yeah, there's been a lot of events that have happened, but I can honestly say not once did I feel like reaching for the bottle. Why is that? I think it was because early on I I got a foundation that – was laid out and and there mm-hmm. for me because of John and because of JC right. and I saw other people in those meetings and I just I just immersed myself in it. I think I was protected and for that first year I was around there all the time. You know that 915 meeting was was my bedrock and on mm-hmm. Saturday morning but we had home groups on Tuesday. We had other uh, there's a Thursday lunch that we started when I was just a few years sober that is still mm-hmm. going on today. Tomorrow at oh, yeah. at one thirty, I'll, I'll meet uh, three guys for lunch. So I, I think that's the reason that, you know, during the, the various happenings, you know, uh, after sobriety, that I haven't really felt like, you know, I'm going to grab the bottle. 
Yeah, one of the reasons I ask that is because I think it's just natural for people, I know I felt this way when I was new in sobriety, who give a little bit of thought to, gee, I wonder if I'll be able to stay sober when or if such and such happens. And the fact that they do and you see people who do is certainly encouraging that you don't have to get drunk in no matter what happens. But I, I always like to ask that question because a well-worked program can absolutely make the difference between drinking in those circumstances and not, right? Oh, yeah. I think had I not stayed in the midst of the program and around people who were in recovery, actively in recovery, because, you know, over the years, I've seen people come in, we became friends, some of them really good friends, and mm -hmm. then they just drifted away. They quit going to meetings, and and some of them I'd hear about later, and it's not good, and others, I don't know where they are. They're Hopefully they're fine, but they're gone. Yeah, that's tough to hear about. But I guess some people have to have that experience so we will be informed by it, and so that we don't have to actively do that kind of thing. I always wonder about, especially when I hear people share in meetings about a lot of the good stuff that's going on in their life. Can you think of any things that have occurred during your 39 plus years of sobriety that you are absolutely convinced would not have happened had you still been drinking? Oh yeah, yeah. Not only in business, but, but in personal life. You know, my, my first marriage uh, ended in divorce. We, we had mm -hmm. a child together and there's a lot of reasons for that but I was single for several years following that mm -hmm. I think in my personal life I would not have met my current wife mm -hmm. and had I met her nothing would have happened because back when I was using I was not a good partner I was not a good boyfriend I wasn't a good husband uh, I was always a nice guy. I was the nice guy that would disappear in the middle of a relationship. That actually started before I started drinking. I mean, I, I had that trait. I would go out with a young girl and, and we'd date for a period of time and we'd be going steady. And I don't know what would happen, but I would just stop calling her. And uh, that was a, a trait that was, was kind of part of my makeup. I don't know why, but uh, I've had to constantly work mm -hmm. on that, on being uh, a worthy partner in a relationship. And are you still married? We celebrated seven years in May. So you spent quite a number of years in between as a single guy. Yeah, several years. We actually, uh, my first wife and I didn't divorce right mm -hmm. away. We had kind of a Hollywood separation, I call it, because mm -hmm. we were friendly we were trying to raise our daughter, but we never went to a lawyer. We just yeah. worked everything out ourselves. Uh, she was a very, very good woman, very kind, and, and a great mom. And uh, we still have a good relationship. But I think we split around 1996 or 7, 97 probably, but we didn't divorce till 2004. So during that time, you know, neither one of us were in, in strong, committed relationships, although we had some. So from 2004 until I got married in 2016. So the last seven years, how would you describe them using one or two words? Learning experience. You know, relationships are hard no matter what. No matter what. And 
I think for me, it's it's getting myself out of the way. I've always yeah. had a problem with ego and, and, and selfishness. I'm learning just to drop that. And I have to be really careful when I'm hungry right. because I, I can act mean. And I never was loud mean. I would just I could just be silently abusive. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> you know, and so I'm I've really worked on that, and, and I think I'm I'm doing a lot better. Uh, my wife and I do have a really good, kind relationship. Constantly growing with that. I'm I'm beginning to understand what it means to be a good partner all the way around. That is so cool. And and I'm talking to you right now today on my 36th wedding anniversary. And uh, I wanted to ask you about something we haven't spent very much time talking about, and that is the spiritual end of your program and the whole concept of a higher power. And can you speak a little bit about your uh, your growth in that area or your current feelings about well, that? To talk about growth, I, I need to go back because... I started my spiritual journey, I think, mostly from my grandfather, my Italian mm-hmm. grandfather, who uh, spoke in broken English. But he was such a mm-hmm. spiritual man, and he would recite the Lord's Prayer to me, and he would write it out because he lived in Morgantown, mm-hmm. West Virginia. He would write it out and mail it to me, and um, that was, I think, when I really started that process and then one day I was over at my grandmother's house Mm -hmm. my mother's mom and she was in her bedroom and I walked over to the window there was Mm -hmm. a bookshelf there and I was just kind of looking at the bookshelf and and my grandma said take one of those and you know you always do what your grandmother says so I'm trying to figure okay I gotta take a book so I just kind of go through and I grabbed a book, and I said, okay, got one, thank you. And I left. And that book, I think, was was one of the more significant things in Mm. my life. And that book was was by Norman Vincent Peale, and the name of the book was The Power of Positive Thinking. I took that book, and it, it started changing my life. It didn't change it right then. But, you know, that book was old at the time. Okay, so in the middle of that book, you know how there's little advertisements? In the middle of that book, there was a little card. I pulled it out, and it said, Plus Magazine, I think was the name of it. Uh-huh. Plus or Insight. I'm, I, I'm not sure. It said, Mail this card, and, and we'll send you free of charge. And I said, Well, yeah, right. So I, I went ahead and filled out the card, put it in the mail, and forgot about it. About two weeks later, I start getting these little books. You can separate with the perforations, and I'd put them in my pocket, and I'd take them with me. If I'm in a restaurant by myself or standing in line somewhere, I'd get it out and read it. So that book connected me with that, and uh, so that was another spiritual thing that happened. But over the years, I've I've really tried to pay attention to to mm-hmm. teachings. The other two books that I read spiritually in the morning with my meditation is is uh, Emmett Fox, mm-hmm. Around the World with Emmett Fox, Daily Reflection. And then the other one is by James Allen. He's another one of my favorite authors and spiritual hmm. teachers. 
So it's it's a progression, and it's still progressing. So no matter how long we stay sober, we never really stop growing spiritually, and it's something that we can pass on to others with absolute assurance that it will be good, not bad. Absolutely. Well, you know, Gary, I've really, really enjoyed the time we've spent together. I don't think I could have gotten to know you. We probably could have gone to a hundred more meetings together, and I wouldn't have gotten to know you in the context that I have today. Getting to hear your whole story is just remarkable to me. You're uh, you're an extraordinary man, and I appreciate getting to spend time with you on Saturday mornings at that meeting that we that we go to by Zoom. I'm glad it continued. Once uh, the, the pandemic was no longer uh, a barrier to going to live meetings, I'm glad that some of these Zoom meetings have persisted. I've learned a lot from you over the time we've spent together on Zoom, but especially today, this has been just truly wonderful. And I really want to thank you for doing this. I love you and you're a good man and I admire and honor your program and your commitment to AA. It's just extraordinary. Well, it's a real pleasure to to talk with you and to get to know you as well. And I always have appreciated your, your knowledge of the history of AA and how you, how you impart that to a lot of newcomers. That's, that's a, a very nice thing to do. Thank you again for doing this, well, thank Gary. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Gary G., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews on this podcast series by following us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.